Well, welcome everybody. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. Welcome to Wilshire for our visitors. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to everyone who's with us online. We are glad that you are here and we are looking forward to the day uh, when you can be with us in person. I remember a Christmas where I managed to make myself miserable. I was four. And we had like four kids in our family at that point. My younger sister hadn't been born yet. And so our Christmas tree, there were quite a few presents under it. And uh, we had a ritual. We, we usually open presents on Christmas Eve. I don't know how you do it, but we, we all had presents, and we just, you know, unwrapped it. And then the, the paper just sort of piled up in kind of a ring of trash around the Christmas tree. And I found myself, four, and they let me do stuff. And so I found myself essentially under the tree, surrounded by this Christmas wrapping, you know, tearing into my presents, digging out what I got. I can't even remember what the presents were. But I remember, I mean, I, I was getting stuff. I was, I, I think I got two big presents. I don't remember. But I remember throwing the paper around as a four-year-old and saying, is that all? And being unhappy. Now, I have since learned to enjoy Christmas, but I think you can all figure out why I was making myself unhappy. What was my mistake? Where did I go wrong? I couldn't buy these presents. I couldn't provide them for myself. I was getting something for free, and I... All I could think of is, I wish there was more. I wish there was more. I wish there was more. Both God's Old Testament and God's New Testament says, what leads to human happiness is to begin to turn our minds to realize God is giving us gifts all the time. What leads to human unhappiness is for us to forget what gifts God is giving us and to start imagining gifts that we're not getting or looking at gifts other people are getting and to forget what gifts God is giving us. And we'll make ourselves unhappy every time we do that. Well, the Old Testament has warnings about that. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Don't covet what your neighbor has. The New Testament talks about it a lot. Today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, 1 Corinthians is what scholars call an occasional letter. It's actually is written to respond to some occasional things that happened. The Corinthians had specific issues. Sometimes it was stuff that Paul knew they were doing wrong. 
And sometimes it was stuff that they themselves had asked Paul about. In chapter 7, he turns to talk about some stuff that they themselves were asking about. They had a particular opinion, and Paul wants to address that opinion, and that's what chapter 7 is about. If you have your study sheet, I've kind of put most of chapter 7 on there. I had to make the font real small, but it's on there, most of it. And what Paul does is he gives you an insight into what's been revealed to him. And he tells you that God's gifts are in two different conditions. There are God's gifts that come uniquely to people who are in the married condition. There are God's gifts that come to people who are uniquely in the single position. God has different gifts for both of those conditions. And, and, and he says, let's understand the giftedness that comes to those different conditions. Verse 6, uh, the second half of verse 6 is kind of where he, he, he says that specifically. Each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another a different God. God gives us many gifts, sometimes through marriage, sometimes through being single. That's just the way this deal works. Now, some of you have read ahead to chapter 12, so you'll know the answer to this question. But even if you haven't read ahead to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, you probably can figure this out. When you're trying to judge depth, which is your favorite, your left eye or your right eye? Depth perception which one do you like best? Well, no, Jim. Actually, if you only have one eye, you can't do depth perception at all. It takes two eyes. Same time, my, my left ear and my right ear. I need those if I'm going to hear which direction the sound is coming from, too. It takes them both, man. Paul makes that point. He says, if you just have like a hand and no eyes, if you just had a stomach, and no head, you wouldn't have a body. It takes all those different things to make a body. God <clears throat> isn't in the business of making monsters. He's in the business of making the body of Christ. And so he gives different gifts to different people. Now, we human beings, we are constantly kind of going into the flesh mode that says, yeah, but which one's better, though, really? Which one is really better? Because clearly one's got to be better than the other. Do you have a better gift? Do I have a better gift? I bet yours is worse than mine. I bet mine is better than... And Paul says, no. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. All the gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. They're not better. They're not worse. They're just different. They are given as the Holy Spirit sees fit. It's up to the will of God, the will of God's Spirit, which gifts we have. And every one of them is wonderful. It's a gift. And the secret to our happiness, and also the way to make ourselves unhappy, lies in how much or how little we are going to lean into the gift 
that God is giving us or the gifts that God is giving us. Well, Paul applies that theology here to the questions, the specific questions that are being asked about marriage. The people in uh, Corinth, the church at Corinth, they have some opinions about marriage. They have inherited a view that's not a very Jewish view. This doesn't come from the Old Testament. This comes more from philosophers like Plato who took a very dim view of anything relating to bodily pleasures. Plato, who was very prestigious by the time the New Testament is written, is considered you know, one of the most eminent philosophers. He had, a, he had an ongoing intellectual school that still existed in Athens. And Plato took a very dim view of any bodily pleasure, especially, you know, anything having to do with sex. He just said, yeah, a really righteous person wouldn't have much to do with that. And so their question is, it's good for a person not to have sex. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, right? Right? And different translations make a decision there, but really just the, the Greek just kind of quotes what the Corinthian church is saying. Right? And Paul doesn't want to contradict them, so he just says, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that means. He says, there's a sense in which it probably is good, but probably not the sense you mean. It turns out, Paul's view is, in the current first century crisis of Christianity with persecution, you're probably going to be more blessed if you stay single, uh, although there are really good reasons for getting married. That, if you read the whole chapter, that's kind of where he ends up. But Paul considers marriage a gift from God. Look down in verse 10, and we can see kind of his attitude towards the gift of marriage. To the married, I say this, I give this command. Well, actually, not I, but the Lord gives this command. He's thinking back to the fact that Jesus had actually already said some of this stuff. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. If she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, not I but the Lord, that if any, any believer, and he says, now this, we don't have a saying from Jesus about this next bit, but I'm saying it and I'm inspired. I say, not the Lord, if any believer has a wife who's an unbeliever and she's content to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he, cons he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. The unbelieving partner separates. Let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you may save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you may save your wife. Paul says several different things there. I'm, I think he's addressing specific questions they had there in the church at Corinth. Am I, if, I, if I'm married to an unbeliever, am I just contaminating my family life 
by staying in this marriage? Shouldn't I just split the marriage up and leave and take my children and keep them safe and uncontaminated from that unbeliever? And Paul says, no. He says, no, that's not how marriage works. That's not what marriage is. If there's a way to keep the marriage whole, you keep it whole. And there he is dealing with the principle that Jesus himself had articulated and that goes back all the way into all the revelation of God, way back into the Old Testament. He's, he's mining that deep vein that all of Scripture talks about. If I were to sum up Paul's view on this, God's gift for marriage come most to those who treat marriage as lifelong. If you want to lean into your state as a married person, if you want to mine deeply the gifts of marriage, then you treat marriage as lifelong. Now, I understand that is not our cultural message. Our cultural message says marriage until love ends. Marriage until problems become painful. Marriage until I can trade up even. That's our cultural message. But Paul says marriage is designed to be lifelong. Now, do problems happen? Yeah, and Paul's aware of it, and he knows there's problems right there in the, in the Corinthian church. He's talking to people who are divorced and who have, have difficulties in previous marriages and all kinds of stuff. And he, he knows that that's true, and he's not saying, okay, split up, go back to your first wife, find where they are. He's not telling any of that. He just says, look, understand what God means by marriage. The marriage you're in, it may have flaws. You may be married to an unbeliever, whatever else. But the marriage you're in, guess what God thinks of it? You make that marriage a lifelong marriage. You make it a lifelong marriage. Now, the person you're with may leave you, may run off. But you make this marriage, as much as you are capable of, a lifelong marriage. That's where the blessings are. Now the reason for that, we'll see in a little bit, he, he kind of goes into that a little more, and he talks about it in other places as well. There's a deep theology behind marriage. There's a special set of gifts that marriage brings, and he kind of tells you a little about that. Then he talks about the single folks. Look at verse 7. I wish all were as myself, but each has a peculiar gift from God, one having one kind, one as another. Paul says, I'm single, and, and I know the giftedness that comes from being single. I know the blessings that come from living the single life. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is well for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they're not practicing self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And then down in verse 32, he goes into that a little more. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. If I were to sum up what Paul is saying is, he says, God gifts for those who are single or for being single come most to those who seek first the kingdom of God. If I lean into God's giftedness of being single, what I'm leaning into is, what is it that God is giving me in this condition? that allows me to be more of the image of God in this world. To represent God out into God's creation and to reflect God's glory back up in praise to him. How has God gifted me to do those things? God has gifted every one of us in Paul's view, with something unique. Whether you are married or whether you are single, there are things that you can do that maybe nobody else in the whole world can do and likely nobody else around here can do in the way that you can do it because of who you are, because of God, who God has shaped you to be and also because of Things that have happened to you. There are things that God has enabled you to be able to do for his kingdom. And your happiness, your fulfillment, your fullness of life will come for how deeply you lean towards those ways to express God's will in your life. There is no happiness otherwise. All there is is a four-year-old sitting under a tree saying, is that all? Is that all? Is that all? Look down at, uh, actually look up at verse 2. Verse 2 through 6, got to say something about this. I am so frustrated with my checking account. Every time I go to get money out of it, it tells me I'm overdrawn. It happens over and over again. In fact, now it's sending me bills saying not only do I not have the money I want, but now I owe more money for trying to take out money I don't have. I am sick of it. I'm telling you one thing. I am not putting another dime in my checking account until it acts right. Make sense? Jim, you're crazy. That's not how checking accounts work. Guess what? That's not how marriage works either. Paul says this, starting in verse 2, but because of sexual immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul gives that principle specifically about sex and sexual relations because I think there was that attitude coming from Greek philosophy that said, maybe now that we're Christians, we're so holy, that should end in our lives. And he says, don't be crazy. Don't be nuts. The Jewish view of sexual relations is, God made that back in Genesis chapter 1. Come on, it's a gift of God. But it's also this. Marriage, for those who enter into it, is bigger than either of you. That's what the revelation of God has shown us all the way through the Bible. Marriage is bigger than either one of you. And because of that, individual rights don't quite fit into what marriage is all about. Marriage is about both individuals turning into something that's bigger than either one of them. When I marry, if if that's what I do, I am yielding myself to make something that I couldn't be by myself. And my spouse is yielding themselves to make something that they couldn't be by themselves. Genesis 2 says the two become one flesh. They become this new thing. And it's a greater thing than the sum of its parts. That's what marriage is designed to be. In Ephesians, Paul says, this is kind of mysterious the way this works, this one flesh thing. It's a reflection of something that happens between us and God and Christ. Christ's church and Christ, kind of the same thing starts happening as we yield to God's will, as we yield to the to the imaging of Christ in the world, we start becoming greater than the sum of our parts as we meld with Christ and his word and his will. It's an amazing thing. But one of the things that it does is it tells us me standing up for my individual rights in marriage is is kind of out of place. Now, don't get me wrong, please. I love the doctrine of individual rights. But it is a partial doctrine. I feel like I need to explain something about that. In our fallen world, the doctrine of individual rights 
is the best doctrine we have for helping to explain the limits of the government. When you're dealing with both fallen and redeemed people, the doctrine of individual rights helps us to understand. There are certain things the government just cannot do to individuals. The doctrine of individual rights is crucial in a fallen world with both saved and lost people, people who believe in God and people who reject God. The doctrine of individual rights says there are certain things the majority just must not do to the minority, even though they have the power to do it. So it is a wonderful doctrine, but it is a limited doctrine. In an ideal world, in the world that's coming, when God's glory spreads across the universe like the waters cover the sea, the doctrine of individual rights will no longer be needed because it will be replaced by, I love you as much as I love myself. That day's coming, but it ain't here yet, and we need the doctrine of individual rights for, certain, for many contexts. So don't hear me as saying it's not important. But to lean into marriage, it is, the doctrine of individual rights is of limited utility, as it is in the church. Much more my thinking has to be I am yielding myself for the good of this new thing my spouse and I are creating, our home, our family, our one flesh. What can I do to make this new entity that God has created by joining us together, what can I do to make this new thing healthy, strong, powerful, and able to endure? What does it require of me to give up, to sacrifice, to think, to do, to make this new thing, this one flesh, to be what God calls it to be? Then I will do that. And my individual rights has now become a servant to that new reality. That's the way Paul pictures it. That's the way scripture pictures it. And brothers and sisters, that's the way we are called to picture it. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, thank you so much for the gifts that you give us. You give us so many. Today we've focused on the unique gifts of being single, the unique gifts of being married, and God, we pray you'll bless everybody in here who is single, and everybody in here who is married. And God, lead us to seek you first in each of those conditions. God, lead us to serve you deeply every day. Give us that deep, deep joy that comes from yielding ourselves to your will and finding our happiness in you. And God, for each one of us, help us to lean on you Help us to trust in you and help us to hope in the future you promise. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.
you need to respond to God's invitation. If you need prayers or help, you can come forward in just a minute and ask for those publicly, or you can talk to the elders or me privately if you prefer. If you are ready to receive baptism, you can come forward and ask for that right now. Baptistry is right behind me. You can confess Jesus Christ, turning away from your sins, and have your sins washed away. Be, walk out of this building a new creation in Christ. Anything that we can do for you, why don't you come forward and tell us your need as we stand and sing.